Have you ever considered studying the Middle Ages at postgraduate level? Apply to CEU now. The Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University in Budapest, Hungary provides intellectually challenging comparative and multidisciplinary postgraduate education on all aspects of the history and culture of the period from 300 to 1600, from late antiquity to the early modern period, Byzantium and the Ottoman Empire. The department currently offers four internationally recognized degree programs, one-year and two-year MA programs and PhD in Medieval Studies, and MA in Cultural Heritage Studies. The language of instruction is English. Generous and merit-based scholarships are available to students from any country. Study with us in a highly stimulating environment and international student body, and apply until February 1st, 2017. For further details, please visit our website at medievalstudies.ceu.edu. This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, I'm Christopher Melke, and you're listening to Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio show on medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We're very pleased today to be joined by Osho Yarethei. She's an assistant professor in medieval and early modern literature and cultural history at the Department of Dutch Studies of the Edvish Lorand University of Budapest. She also received her PhD from the Department of Medieval Studies here at CEU, so uh, very good to have a familiar face with us. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure and an honor to be with you. I wanted to start, uh, if you don't mind, with um, some of your uh, earlier work, because the uh, the main reason I've heard of you before is um, the, the many conferences and exhibitions that you've had about a queen by the name of Mary of Austria. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about her? We're going to have a discussion right in the beginning, because you of call course. her Mary of Austria, and oh. I'm sure you meant to be provocative. Of course. <laughs> call her Mary of Hungary, but oh, I okay. know I realize that there's a... Uh, there are different ways you can look at her. Uh, she is indeed Mid Mary of Austria. If you look at the family, the Habsburg family, she comes from the fa family of Habsburg. Mm -hmm. And she was born in the Low Countries. But since the family comes from Austria, at least is associated with Austria. Mm -hmm. well, okay, it's, it's difficult to say those it words. It really is. <laughs> why I call her Mary of Hungary mm -hmm. is, and why many people call her, I'm, I'm not very original in that, <laughs> is that she calls herself Mary of Hungary. She was Queen of Hungary and she was crowned. She was married to the King of Hungary. She was Queen Consort to Louis II, King of Hungary, last medieval King of Hungary, who mm -hmm. died tragically young in the Battle of Mohács, mm -hmm. which is considered the end date, 1526 end date of the Hungarian medieval period. She uh, survived the battle. Mm -hmm. She fled uh, with a larger part of the council and uh, she fled to Pozsony, mm -hmm. Bratislava today in Slovakia. And later she Five years later, she became regent of the Low Countries, where she helped her brother Charles V, Emperor Charles V. She, during this period, or actually till the end of her life, she continued signing her charters as Mary of Hungary. This was an important legitimation. This was, she was sure, queen, sure, sure. And, and, and if she signed herself Mary of Hungary, I think that... Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> 
it's uh, correct to call her Mary of Hungary, but you Good. can go on calling her Mary of Austria. If you <laughs> <like. laughs> well, no, I always think it's sort of interesting to think how people thought of themselves in the Middle Ages and how they, the sort of idiosyncrasies that they had. I mean, just thinking of the wives of Henry VIII, uh, the n- wife number six, historians usually call her Catherine Parr, but she signed her... She signed her name Katerin, mm-hmm. uh, K-A-T-E-R-Y-N. So the one, there was a recent uh, biography of her that called itself Katerin Parr. So it's, yeah. I mean, when it comes to queens, there are all these sorts of conventions that we have. But uh, exactly. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's really, really important that we sort of start thinking of questions of how did how did this lady think of herself. In which case, we have, with Mary of Hungary, we mm-hmm. have a wonderful object of study because she uh, she was somebody who was, who was maniac in writing. She wrote all the time. She was a graphomaniac. <laughs> and we actually have so many of her letters, oh, uh, not cool. only of her letters, not only of the official things, but also kind of things, notes she took for herself. So one of my favorite documents is, is a kind of pros and cons lists which she made for herself. It's It's been edited about the question of whether she should or should not be remarried after the death of her first really? husband. And it's fascinating because you can really follow the thought processes of this very intelligent, mm-hmm, very mm-hmm. strong, willful young woman who was in a horrible position because her husband died. She lost all, oh, yeah. you know, everything, her position. And she was at the mercy of her two brothers, Ferdinand oh, yes. and Charles. And they were both putting immense pressure on her to get remarried. They basically, they wanted her out of the way. Well, this may be, it's maybe too negative to say that. They wanted her being provided for. Mm-hmm, of course, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, a widow is has to be provided for by, by what her husband left her. But in this case, since Ferdinand was, you know, took over Hungary, Hungary uh-huh. from Louis, it was the brothers who had to provide for her. And the brothers thought that was very inconvenient. So they yes. wanted to get her to marry. And she made a list of why she would get married and why she wouldn't get married. And at the end, the cons came out and she said, she wrote a letter afterwards and she said, look, these are the reasons that I will not get married ever. <laughs> and uh, I, I, th- I think that's really you get a glimpse into the way she thought and the uh-huh. way she documented her thoughts. Sure. And it's fascinating. She's a fascinating woman. She's Definitely. Really amazing. And I, I remember reading in, in one of the um, articles that you wrote for the um, exhibition catalog about her. You start with a letter um I think in her last will and testament, where it talks about the fact that she had this one heart pendant uh, that used to be her husband's that she wore until her death. Yeah, I actually brought this quote with me. Oh, because oh, oh okay. <laughs> this is the quote I was talking about. I know you love objects. Uh, I know yes, you I love do. objects. I, I really which have do. To do with queens, so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go to make you happy with this. So let me read this. Okay, uh-huh, it's uh-huh. a quotation. Uh, it's in her testament. I think she the first version of the testament was from 1555. Later, she made a second version, and here is oh, sorry, this is Hungarian. Of course, it's here's the English translation of the testament. Mm-hmm. Since the death of my husband, the king, I have been wearing a golden heart on a chain. He wore the same pendant until his death. My order is that this heart, together with the chain upon which it hangs, be melted down and given to the poor. It was a companion of two people until their death, two people who were never separated from each other either in their lives, in their love, or in their sentiments. Therefore, let this heart perish and lose its form, just like the bodies of those who loved each other. 
Wow. Wow, yes. I mean, this is beautiful. You can imagine that this for generations have ca has captivated people and they thought, you know, the ultimate romantic testament. When you <laughs> but I think it's more than that. So uh -huh. I, it, it is. I mean, it is an ult. I, I, I don't want to. I, I think it's very important to take the emotions seriously. Sure, sure, sure. But of course, you always have to, as a historian, you always try to look and look at the reasons. You try to look at the what somebody used, the the, the myths, the topoi and, and, and the rhetoric of mm -hmm. something like, I mean, will is a public document. Obviously, there's a lot of rhetoric in it as well. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it's interesting how she thought of this. It's an, On the other hand, it's interesting how she presented herself as the widowed queen. This was very important for her own self self-fashioning. Uh, she was the widowed queen of Hungary. This mm -hmm. is very important. On the third the third point, which for mm -hmm. me is interesting and I think may be interesting for you, is has to do with objects. I yes. mean, I think it's fascinating that we hear there is mention of an object which used to belong to the king. It's a heart, a, a golden heart pendant. She wore it after the death of the king. We have no idea how it got from him to her. You know, mm -hmm. there's no mention of it anywhere else. And when she dies, she has it melted down. They didn't have any children, so the, the, the marriage was childless. Yes. Her possessions were inherited by different people, relatives and, and, and members of her, her court. This pendant must perish and be given to the poor. First of all, I think that's a very nice thought. Second of all, I think it's very symbolic of objects. Objects rarely survive. And oh, yes. Medievalists were looking at objects, were interested in objects, mm -hmm. wanted to see what objects tell us. When I was preparing the exhibition uh, about Mary of Hungary, then, uh, you know, we started with a huge uh, <laughs> elan of, OK, we're going to collect everything. And then soon we realized yes. that, um, <laughs> yes, well, everything isn't all that much. I mean, no, and you no, have no. to fill several rooms, several glass cases. So at a certain point of desperation, I thought, OK, I'm going to make a wonderful exhibition with a huge amount of empty glass cases. And in every empty glass case, I'm going to have a short description of what should be here. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that yeah. hasn't survived a kind of you know a history of an object. You, yeah. you're, you're a big I, I, history I feel of objects. Like, I feel like I'm doing that with my thesis <laughs> yes. right now. <laughs> I think it would have been really effective. I, I'm not sure the people would have felt. Uh, <laughs> how can I say? Really pleased with the visual effects, but I think as a thought process of you know what should be here and what sure, hasn't sure, survived. Sure. I think in terms of you know a didactic uh, measure, it would have been really cool. But at the same time, there would have been that guy going, "What the hell, Irma? I'm in a room full of empty boxes." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I decided against it, but I thought it was a nice idea. <laughs> I might still do it one time <laughs> when I'm rich and famous. Definitely, and things like definitely. That. <laughs> you could it could be you know a, a historical exhibit. It could also be you know a modern art exhibit. Yeah, sure. A room full of empty boxes. <laughs> oh, the symbolism. <laughs> but I think that that quotation from Mary's will is so powerful for so many reasons. Um, I think the biggest one is the fact that you know when I when I teach them the history of the Middle Ages, it a lot of people approaching the Middle Ages for the first time really have a hard time imagining, um, well, that people had emotions then. It sounds really ridiculous, but at the same time, there there's all these con notions that, you know, oh, well, children died yeah. so often that, you know, it didn't really matter to them. But I think that a, a will like that and documents like these that show the very personal aspect are very important. And it also shows how, um, I, in my opinion, how the queen is both a very public figure and also a person and the the two the the lines between the two get blurred so easily and uh oh i just think it's really really fascinating and i related to objects i mean one of the questions that i wanted to ask you in relation to putting the museum exhibit together is in your opinion what do you think objects 
uh, tell us about people that um, maybe um, written documents like pros and cons of getting married might not. You have to cheat. I mean, if you work with, if you're making an exhibit <clears throat> about the Middle Ages, a great number of objects have very little to do with Mary of Hungary. You want to show sure, objects, sure. you want to show something that's interesting, and you want to tell the story. And you have to, in an exhibit, other than a book, you have to hang your story onto objects. So that's that you want to, to prickle the visual side of the whole thing. You want to you want to get the people to look and mm-hmm. to look to understand different things. There are objects that belong to somebody. There are objects that depict somebody, but they are never. You have to teach the people to to look. I think that's important. You also have to to kind of teach them to understand that that even if some if, if an object doesn't directly have. Even, I mean, this object would have been lovely to show. We don't sure. have it. Right, right. But th- we don't have. We have basically none of her jewelry or anything that she wore on her body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People like that kind of thing. I mean, it's the romantic notion of something has, that has been touched by mm-hmm, somebody mm-hmm. famous. And actually, you see that in the history of appropriation very often in, in kind of antiquarian descriptions of objects. I mean, we have a, we have a ring, for instance, with a, with a beautiful M, letter M. And it's, it's known as the Ring of Mary of Hungary. Mm-hmm. Basically, modern research has shown that it has nothing to do with Mary of Or at least there's, it's very, very unlikely that I it has to do anything to do with Mary of Hungary. Again, we have a lovely dress. It's mm-hmm. in, uh, in the Mariazel, uh, it used to be in the Mariazel uh, collection. Uh, supposedly it was given by Mary of Hungary as a bridal dress, so that she gave her bridal dress and the, the bridal or the, the groom dress or the marriage garments of uh, Louis and Mary were given by somebody to uh, Mariazel or donated it's very unlikely, or at least we don't know. There's a long yeah, legend yeah. of this. It was actually attributed to different queens. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <In> different literature. <laughs> it, you, you, it appears as as the marriage dress of different of different people. Very often, we have to realize that we have famous people. Mm-hmm. We have beautiful objects, but the story has to be made by us. Yes. So, and the story is not always black and white thing that you know this is the object of the famous person. You can show these beautiful objects, but you should explain that. Look, we don't know. Right, right. The audience doesn't like so medieval. What for a medievalist is one of the wonderful aspect of medieval studies that you don't know a lot of things. I mean, it's it's wonderful that you can kind of you know make the story yourself sure, sure, from sure. the existing. You can you have to use your imagination for the public. That's often frustrating they like they like clear-cut things they like it if they're told what it is definitely and if you leave a lot of question marks you say well it might it might not it's unlikely people tend to get frustrated but i think that's that's part of the the process you have to learn that things aren't black and white there it's a it's you know there's a lot of empty places there which you can fill in or better not fill in (laughs) yes epistemological concerns i think are always very important how do we know what we know i mean if you go on ebay for instance you can buy you know brad pitt's chewing gum Mm. how you can tell that this used piece of chewing gum was really caressed by the mouth of brad pitt (laughs) it's very difficult to tell On that note, I think it's time for us to take a short break. We'll be back momentarily. Please enjoy the music. 
Welcome back. Uh, I'm Christopher Melke, and uh, we're joined today by Orshoyarete, um, an assistant professor at the Eötvös-Loránd University of Budapest. Ah, oh, what can I say? It's really fun having you here. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Thanks a lot. It's great being here. Good, good, good. Well, one of the um, one of the things that I I wanted to bring up uh, before we had our break was you mentioned earlier the fact that Mary of Hungary. Um, goes to the Netherlands and since you are um you're at the Department of Dutch Studies there I wanted to ask um for a little bit of clarification about this relationship between Mary of Hungary uh, and the Netherlands Mary of Hungary was born in mm-hmm. the Low Countries she was born in Mechelen her parents died or at least her father died very early half year after her birth and her mother uh, never left Spain so they were in Spain okay. uh, they left her in uh, in the care of her aunt Margaret of Austria Margaret was taking care of of several of these uh, of the children and she grew up in the court of Margaret of Austria at least till she turned nine mm-hmm. so her early years uh, she spent in the wonderful we should know that this was Margaret of Austria at that time was the regent of the Low Countries mm-hmm. for uh, her father Maximilian the uh, first and uh, later for her nephew, Charles V. Mm -hmm. So she had a long period of regency and she had wealth. She was also a widow and she had taste and she had style. (laughs) She was a a woman to be reckoned with and she had a wonderful (laughs) Renaissance court really full of the artistic masterpieces. She invited the the, thinkers and musicians and Uh really all forms of intellectual and artistic the most high quality uh, uh, players of the time to her court. The so best Mary, and brightest. Yeah, yeah, the best and brightest. She she had the money for it and she, it was the place to be. That's where Mary grew up till her ninth. Then she was taken or at least she was sent to Austria. She was, by that time, she was, it was decided actually very early, it was decided she was to be married to the Hungarian king. But they, he, both she, both he were underage. So mm-hmm. there, she spent a couple of years in Austria in uh, the court of her grandfather, Maximilian where she was raised and trained and educated uh, to be the future Queen of Hungary. I'm not going to go into the details. It's a fascinating story, but I I can tell you, but (laughs) I have to get to the low countries. So after she was almost five years, she was Queen of Hungary. Mm-hmm. And after the Battle of Moach, there were a couple of years where it was uncertain what she would be. She didn't want to be remarried. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. exactly this decision made her brothers decide that she was a good candidate for the next regency of the Low Countries. By that time, they knew that Margaret of Austria was serious. She was getting old yeah. and uh, she died. After she died, Mary was Actually, before she died, Mary already was a candidate to be to follow her and be mm. the regent of the Low Countries. For this reason, it was very important that she does not remarry. So a widow I queen, see. of course, was somebody who wasn't going to bring uh, the succession of the Low Countries. A regent had to be, or at least the Habsburgs liked, they had a huge territory and they liked giving different areas to different family members sure, because, sure, sure. you know, they had control over their family. They were, the family members were loyal, Habsburg families, mm-hmm. extremely loyal family. And a woman, a good, a talented, intelligent woman could be a regent, just as Ma- Margaret of Austria uh, had been a good regent, but it it was very important that she doesn't get remarried. So yeah, Mary's decision yeah. not to be remarried was the consequence of this was that she was asked as a regent. I see. And in 1531, that's when she traveled to the Netherlands, to the Low Countries, and she was appointed regent. And she remained the regent till 
1555. And then two more, the last two years of her life, she went to Spain together with her brother, Charles V. And then the last two years of her life she spent in Spain. That leaves us with the 25 years period yes. of regency in the Low Countries. And this has not received very much attention because she's usually in the shadow of her brother, Charles V, who was, of course, we all know he was, he's a, <laughs> he's a figure that looms large in Habsburg uh, history. Especially and, uh, his draw. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> uh, this period with all the, uh, all the religious problems, political problems, the building up, uh, up of the Habsburg Empire. Yeah, These are yeah, all yeah. Uh, his doing. But actually, the things that happened, he spent very few years in the Low Countries. So basically, everything that happened in the Low Countries was Mary's concern. Uh-huh. Of course, she was a regent. So she wrote letters almost daily mm-hmm. to Charles V. And you have these letters in which she says, OK, you've got to answer. These are, there are things you have. You have to you have to help me in this. Yeah. Often she didn't get an answer, so she had to decide herself. She, of course, she had counsels. She mm-hmm. had she had uh, advisors around her. But her uh, recent research, especially by Letitia Horter van Rooyen, shows that her power in the Low Countries was very big. So she had it in the decision-making procedure. What she thought and what she considered important was an important factor. That's really that's really really interesting because what what little I've heard about Mary's regency of the Netherlands is that. The sort of really antiquarian historians say that, you know, she was very unpopular because she was sort of seen as this agent of Catholicism Mm -hmm. uh, in the Netherlands. And that this is also the sort of literature that uh, talks about her as an agent of Charles V Mm -hmm. rather than as an agent of her own. We know that she was interested. So she was she was an intellectual. Mm-hmm, she was somebody mm-hmm. who really followed what was the intellectual currents of her time. She was fascinated by the Protestant Ref- Reformation. And she read very early on in her life, she came into contact with writings of Luther. She re- We know, actually, as a fact, we know that she possessed some of Luther's writings here in the, in the Buddha court. So so here wow. she was surra- in Austria and at the Buddha court. She was surrounded by people who were interested in uh, the Reformation. This is very early on. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, this yeah. Is, in, in, you know, in 1522, we have records. We have a letter which, which from which it's evident that she had read Luther's certain tractates of Luther. These were forbidden, of course. I mean, these are also, again, it was forbidden to, to come into any contact with Luther. It was her own family uh-huh. that, that brought these laws. I mean, Luther was somebody who was <laughs> yeah. who was absolutely a persona non grata. Yeah. But when uh, she put several psalms to music, or she had her court musician put the Luther's translation of several psalms to music. I see. I mean, you know, that's pretty public. That's not, that's not, then we're not talking about private letters saying right, that right, I've read right, something yeah. from Luther, Luther. Then we're talking about somebody <laughs> giving, giving a commission to yeah. a court musician mm-hmm. and having the music played. I mean, and these were Luther's translations. So, so how public, how private that was. Research shows that later on, her brothers put very big pressure on her to cut all ties with, okay. with the, with the people of the Reformation. And she decided to do that. So, mm-hmm. If she wanted the region, the position as a regent, then she had to make a clear-cut decision and and simply stay with Catholicism, and she accepted this. But her sympathies did stay with with the Reformation. How fascinating! I think that the the interesting thing about it is that a lot of the way that the the Reformation is depicted is in very black and white terms, and I think that the reality for most people is that what I'm what I'm gathering is that a lot of them may have had sympathy with one side or the other, but it was such a huge rift that 
again, going back to objects in England, you have all of these examples of people hiding statues in barns that are found 400 years later during the time of the Reformation because they didn't want these statues destroyed. And this is the period when you didn't necessarily have to make a decision yet. I mean, this I is see, the, yes. in the early Reformation, you had it was it was not clear where it would lead to. Yes. It was it was also something simply fashionable. It was it was something that, as an intellectual, as somebody mm-hmm, who read mm-hmm. books, it was a current. It was something that was going on. And if you want, you know, if if you were interested, you had yeah, to, yeah, yeah. you had to know about it. And the later, of course, then the decision became clear. You yes, were either yes, with yes. us or against us. In this period, there you indeed you do have people who are. It's it's not. You, it's very difficult to put them in boxes. I sure, mean, they sure, were, sure. <laughs> supporters are <laughs> against. Just a question more out of my ignorance than anything. You know, as far as a Mary as regent of the Netherlands, what sort of issues did she have to deal with? I mean, this is obviously a very very long period of rule. Yeah. As far as her her governing things, you know, you mentioned that she was writing to Charles about problems. Like, what were some of the big issues that she had to handle? The biggest problem was wars and no money. Wars with with France. So there was during her period there was almost a constant warfare between the Habsburg, yeah, family (laughs) (laughs) dynasty and the Low Countries. There you have a border with France, or you had a border. So so that was one of the. It was an easy target. It was it was a constant problem. Of course, warfare costs money. Yes. And Mary never had money. Well, of mm. course, none of the. I mean, the kings always. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rulers always have a money problem. These were. This was the wealthiest area of of Europe. I mean, we have the Low Countries. It was, oh, yeah. of course, densely populated towns. Very trade. rich area trade. Uh, the Low Countries produced uh, great wealth, but of course, war was not something that that was very profitable for trade and for no, commerce. No, no. And there was a limit to which the, the, the states were willing to support this warfare. So Mary had to fight very much to get the money for the warfare. And this was one of the main problems. The Reformation was the other main problem. And this, mm. this again, this was a very volatile period uh, when the Reformation turned into something which later, of course, was one of the reasons why the Low Countries, in the Low Countries, the, the 80, 80 Years War broke out. So again, religion was 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 a huge problem if you look at her government or governing uh, centralization so charles v this was the period of, of a huge centralization of okay, the low countries and she was very much involved in the centralizing processes which again was not something very popular with the uh, with the locals with I can the not, provincial yeah. structure of the low countries Regarding this 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 Dutch issue, I do have to ask you're you're in um, you're in the department of uh, Dutch studies, right? And I mean, talking with you uh, before the interview, one of the issues that you had was that you're in a Dutch studies department, but doing medieval studies. I I, I don't mean to be you know provocative or anything, but is there a tension between the two? Yes, I mean that's that's where life life makes the decisions that you would like to make Fair <laughs> yourself, <laughs> and of course you have to make the most of the decisions of life. I'm very happy to be where I am. So Good. I actually I'm it's being at the working at the Dutch Studies Department is wonderful, but the Dutch Studies Department is a place where the emphasis lies on one on teaching the students Dutch. That's not oh, sure. what I do. I mean that's not yeah, my yeah, yeah. and teaching them Dutch culture. I do uh-huh. mostly what I most of what I do is I teach literature, mm-hmm. and most of my uh, research has to do with older literature. I also teach modern Dutch literature, oh, but yeah, older uh-huh. literature. So basically the emphasis from my of my research had to 
shift from medieval studies. I, I always did the late medieval studies, and mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. since my PhD subject had to do with the Low Countries, it wasn't a huge shift, but still, no, no, no. it had to shift from kind of more historical, cultural, historical uh, orientation to a more literary type of studies. But I have profited very much from the medieval background. I mean, I think being a medievalist and doing old literature, you have a you have a kind of knowledge and background of of, of methodology mm-hmm, and of mm-hmm. approach that a lot of people who begin with literature perhaps don't have. Well, it gives you good critical reading and thinking exactly. skills, in my opinion. Yeah. So, yeah. We'll have to take a very short break right now, but uh, we'll be back momentarily. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back. I'm Christopher Melke, and you're listening to Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio Show in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We're joined today by uh, Orsho Yarethe, uh, assistant professor at the Eötvös-Loránd University in Budapest. Uh, thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much. We've been having a really interesting conversation so far, and one of the things I wanted to talk about in this segment is culture. One of the questions that has sort of come up between us is the um, notion of queens as a means of uh, cultural transfer. So, And it's very easy to sort of say queen is an agent of cultural transfer but how does that actually work i think that's a that's one of the key concepts that interests me in queens so i mean i'm you know i'm fascinated by mary of hungary but i queens in general are people who travel from one culture to another and they don't do that on their own but they carry a large number of objects with them, mm-hmm. uh, their dowry, their uh, objects of use, of everyday use, artistic objects, books, whatever, then they go, they tra- usually travel with a huge retinue. idea of cultural transfer was, was delineated by Werner in España in the 80s, and then it was used for very many areas, very many areas of research, and uh, Karl-Heinz Spies is one of the people who investigated in how marriages, how the travel, the actual geographical travel of of a, of a woman and her surroundings from one country to the other, how that influences contacts and culture. And I, I think that's a fascinating concept because what you see is that very often the arrival of a queen to another country, and especially if it's of a country of which is separated by a large distance, results in a cultural transformation, mm-hmm, in, a, in mm-hmm. a new ideas, new concepts, new new objects, and that often can actually be traced. So you, sure. you see that 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 simply style changes. The queen. In any case, is somebody who usually is has the the field of culture. Uh, very often, a, a queen, the representation or the, what a queen is supposed to do is 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 to have a kind of court which which has a status and which shows that that culture is of course a very important factor of court life. But you see that she brings with her a lot of things. Also, language is one of these things which fascinates mm-hmm. me. How language travels and how language is used in a different setting and how uh, how language is used for different different roles. There was a book ages ago published about the 17th century wife of uh, Charles II of England, who, yeah. a Portuguese princess. Goodness, there are so many things like the drinking of tea, yeah. porcelain, that became very, very popular because she brought them with her. And yet at the same time, when Charles first met uh, Catherine of Braganza, she was wearing this uh, headdress, which was very fashionable in Portugal. But what he, upon seeing her, he said to his um, the people next to him, gentlemen, you have brought me a bat. <laughs> 
because it looked like she had wings That's on her head. Misfires, cultural <laughs> transfer, misfires. I'm so, not sure it always, you know, it always lasts. I mean, we know in the, in sure. the Buddha court that Beatrix of Aragon, the wife of, oh, of yeah. Matthias Corvinus, uh, she brought forks along with her. And we know Bonfini uh, records that forks were in. But by the time of Mary of Hungary, forks, forks were, were out. out. And it took, actually, it took quite quite some time to have forks back in again. So Beatrix was before her time. Uh, and obviously, forks <laughs> were considered... I mean, we don't have a, a recordings of, of them to be considered something which was insulting or anything. But anyway, they, it, it didn't catch on, eating with forks. And that's funny about queens and forks because um, the earliest medieval record I know of, of forks in Western Europe is Theophanu, a Byzantine princess. Byzantine something rather. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some relation to the emperor who married Otto II. And the, Germ- the, the, the Germans were very sort of like, what the hell is she doing? She's eating with this two-pronged <laughs> instrument. <laughs> and this is back in like the 10th century. So yeah. Yeah. Obviously, it took yes. centuries <laughs> for forks to <laughs> be something of a something of an everyday use, even in the courts. Queens and forks. There's yeah. an article to be done there. <laughs> well, I'm sure there is. <laughs> Again, you know, how permanent these these yeah. cultural transfers are is an important question and how how well received they are because you mentioned Queen Beatrix yeah. and it, it's very hard to study her um, nowadays because they're you know yes she brought a lot of humanist influence and a lot of Italian customs and a lot of Renaissance ideas to the court in Buddha but how well they were received by the nobles was not yeah. you know it, it was very hit or miss and some things that they liked and some things they really didn't like and some people didn't even like her as a person. Um, Most for... people didn't like her yes. as a person. <laughs> Actually, Hungarian queens of the Middle Ages were usually disliked. But oh, yeah. Janusz Buck has a has a, yes. has a great article on this uh, about queens who were who were disliked, sometimes killed. Queens, so, <laughs> queens as scapegoats. Exactly. It's a very very good one. And uh, yeah. in in that instance, I think that there's there's a lot of parallels with uh, English queens in the Middle Ages, yeah. where for uh, I think the the most popular English queens are the ones who. Came, like Philippa of Hainaut, the wife of Edward III, she came over to England with the rich Flemish retinue. And, you know, they spent a lot, they treated people well, and then went the hell back home. Yeah. <laughs> and part of the cultural transfer is not just queens bringing things, but bringing people with bringing them. Bringing people with them, obviously, yes. One of the big questions always in the question of setting together the, the retinue or the household, the court of a queen, is how much of her retinue she's allowed to to, mm. to keep with her mm-hmm. that's always that's that's in several cases i've investigated that that's always a huge point of argument will the, the people come along with her sure that's mm-hmm. i mean that's that's part of her prestige a, a large retinue but how many of those are allowed to stay on how yeah. many are because of course they have to be paid the household of the queen has to be financed in some way and how many of the local people will be integrated into the household mm-hmm. how many of her original people she's allowed to keep that's always a power struggle some of the more misfortunate queens had to do without any of their own people. And of course, that means not being able to, to use your own language, not being able to, to do confession in your own language, for instance, also you know, considering yeah. religion. Mary of uh, Hungary was very powerful in this sense. She, she kept a, a huge retinue uh-huh. of uh, people from the Low Countries and from Austria, also in her Buddha years. On the other hand, when she went to, to the Low Countries, she took very few people uh, from this region, partly because her brothers were concerned about the, the Protestant sympathies of her uh, household. So I they, see, they basically said that, okay, come out, bring some people with you, not but too try many. not too many and try to use the people here. The example that sticks out in my mind the most is Catherine of Aragon, mm. 
um, she'd married Henry VIII's older brother. And yeah. then there was like a nine-year period where she was wid- the widowed princess of Wales. Be- because there was a, a, an argument over the payment of her dowry, yeah. she was just in absolute poverty yeah. and couldn't afford to pay her staff members. So yeah. not a very happy period. Not a very life. happy period. No. Interesting that you should mention her because oh, I okay. just wanted to talk about my new research also oh, sure, sure, concerning sure. Queens. I told you that I do more <laughs> with literature now, but I, there's one, I do several different subjects, but one of my interests is uh, are songs that describe Queens that are dying. And I'm interested it, about there's a one a songbook called the Antwerp Songbook. It's from 1544, and it's a, it's a large collection. It's actually the earliest collection of non-religious songs, okay. uh, and it's a fascinating collection. For me, what is interesting is that it also includes several historical songs. So several songs describe, for instance, battles between the Dutch and the French, and they give kind of daily accounts of what happened and the glorious deeds of the soldiers and and who climbed up uh, and who who died and who. Uh, survived and so on and so on. There's another type of historical song and I call those queen songs or adieu songs. There are five songs in the collection that in which a queen is dying and she says goodbye words. She she says goodbye to the people around her. So the fictitious situation is that she's lying in a bed, she's going to die in a couple of minutes mm-hmm. and she says goodbye to all the people around her who are her family members, her advisors and she uh, asks for their for the mercy for her own children and for her country and she uh, she says you know take care of those who who I love. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating about this is that they all go back so the earliest such song these are all about queens that actually existed and they're all about queens who has some kind of relationship to the Habsburg dynasty. And the earliest such song has to do with Mary of Burgundy who was the immensely popular wife of Maximilian the uh-huh, uh-huh. She's of course a key figure in the Low Countries because through her person she was she was the heir and through her person the family or the, the area went over from the Burgundians to the Habsburgs. I so see. And she was a very popular figure, so she was loved, beloved by the people. Mm -hmm. And what I'm investigating right now is how the popularity of Mary of Burgundy is used to legitimize the Habsburg claim. So song is a literary genre, and it's used in Dutch. Of course, the the court language was French, so so Uh if you you use anything in Dutch, then you try to, to influence large masses of people. And song spreads. So if you start singing songs, then it tends to kind of spread. If if it's a catchy tune, if it's a good good text, then people spread it. So it's an it's an excellent way to to to, to pass on propaganda, some pass on a message that yeah, you want yeah, the people yeah. to to believe. And I'm looking at how the queen's figure, the tragic figure of the queen who is dying, mm-hmm. uh, romanticized history, of course, how that's used to to popularize the Habsburg dynasty in this case. I see. I mean, one of the questions that I was going to ask you was, you know, about the audience, like who would be listening to these songs and who would be singing these songs. So it wasn't court songs. No, no. No. It was it was it was every day. These are every day, every day. So first of all, the language tells you that yeah, these are yeah, not yeah. in the court. These are not yeah. really meant for the court. Dutch is spoken at the court, but still the main language at the court is French. French. These are the Antwerp, Antwerp songbooks were made. They were set together by somebody, a, a printer who said that, you know, he just collected popular songs. Hmm. So he was interested in selling it. He wanted, he wanted you know, he, he was interested <laughs> in in, uh, in getting a good profit. So yeah, he yeah. collected popular songs. He, he uh, put them in a collection and he sold it. It was a very 
quite a cheap edition. So it was kind of for everybody. You, it, not everybody could afford it, but most people could afford it. Oh, like lower gentry, maybe. Yes, exactly. Or townspeople, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah, it, yeah. And, and people sung. So we kn- we know that this was an era. This was a period when when singing it was, it was you know there was television there wasn't radio it, it was it was a kind of communal pastime and uh-huh. people sung during work during a uh, leisure time uh, everywhere and of course what they sung if you had an influence on what they sung melody it talks of the emotions it it it, it has if you have a, a good tune if you have a melody which is known by the people very often the technique of contrafacts that they use a melody that was already sung and they write a new text I to see, it. I see, I see. Uh-huh. That was, of course, a way to spread a message. I mean, if, if people sing and you say, okay, we'll sing it with this text, mm-hmm. and if they like it, because, of course, it's a romantic theme. I mean, a queen who's dying, a tragic young oh, queen, yeah, Mary yeah. of Burgundy, yeah. she fell off the horse, you know, she left two small children behind. It's, a, it's, it's, it's obviously, it has an appeal. It has a huge appeal. Yeah. And then once that's popular, you can take the same form and write the same type of song for the next Habsburg princesses and queens. And you can make a tragic story and you can make the dynastic claim that we're all part of one family and we're all, you know, we're all likable. Yeah. We're, we're people, actually. These are women who, above all else, cared for their country. Yes, of course. And yeah. and why I started talking about it. Sorry, yeah. this Catherine of oh, Aragon sure. is one of the... <laughs> so one of the songs is about Catherine of Aragon. Oh, really? Oh. She, uh, she wasn't a Habsburg princess, but she was aunt of, of Charles V. Yes, yes. From Spain, so for the Spanish line of the family. Yes. And, of course, it was a tragic story i it, mean you know she she was she was divorced and she died in poverty and one of the songs is about her she's dying in poverty oh and she's God. basically saying that henry mistreated me but i love him anyway oh my gosh right. it's it's, yeah. it's beautiful isn't it you know take care of my daughter she, yes. she's you know it's it's i've i've been mistreated but i i'm the queen yes. of of england that's oh, her she... claim and the funny thing is how imitating life, I mean, Catherine of Aragon insisted till her dying day that she was Henry's true and lawful wife. Exactly. So here we have a different type <laughs> of legitimacy. Yes. You have legitimacy. You have, you know, I am, who am I? Yeah, yeah. I am the Queen of England, says Catherine of Aragon. And if, you know, thousands, hundreds sing that, you know, I am the Queen of England and I'm dying and I'm saying goodbye and I love my husband anyway. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've, you've made your point. I mean, obviously, sure. uh, even if people don't really have a very big historical consciousness about you know who is she and whatever in in the time when these when these subjects were spoken about mm-hmm. you have an i speaker these are all i speakers so it's the queen actually saying yes. goodbye so uh. that has a very strong impact on the singer i'm i'm singing about catherine and aragon it's me who is singing yeah. so i think it it really works in a very it's it's a very effective kind of propaganda sure, for sure, sure. for large for a large number of people very emotional and yeah. <laughs> y- y- not the sort of thing you can really ignore, I, no. I don't think. Very sorry, but we are going to have to take a short break right now. Um, we'll be back uh, to finish up in just a moment. Welcome back. Uh, I'm Christopher Melke. Joining us for some final words is uh, Orsho Yarete from the Eötvös Lorand University of Budapest. 
What can I say? We've really covered quite a lot of ground today, haven't we? We started off with an example of one queen, and yet we've been talking about things like personal letters, the last will and testament, objects, songs. Really, we have, in, in terms of source material, I think one of the things that's been most fascinating about this conversation is the fact that we've covered so many different grounds of source material in Hungary and the Netherlands. It almost feels like we've barely scratched the surface. I think you're right. I, I, I think one of the basic things, at least what I see in my own research, and one of the things that I've learned at the Central European University at Medieval Studies is that interdisciplinarity is the way to do medieval studies. At least mm -hmm. something it's something that I've gained so much from. What you said before, people say that that's the way of the future. I think that it is the way that things are happening now. Sure. What we've talked about here has to do with so many different sources. And I think to get the picture, the whole picture, it is important to look at the different type of sources and look at the different type of methodologies mm -hmm. and allow yourself to look, to take a new look and to kind of try to ignore what you've seen before. Take a new look, a fresh look, and then try to integrate these things. Taking a more personal note, in my own life, I had to start again and again and again. And it, that could be a source of frustration. I mean, I studied English. I studied literature, medieval studies at the Central European University. Mm. Again, I did my PhD in medieval studies. Now I'm doing, I'm working at the Department of Dutch Studies. It's a lot of energy into yeah. starting things up again and learning the basics of a new field or a new segment of medieval studies. On the other hand, I think it's immensely enriched my own view on mm -hmm. what I do. I mean, I take along everything that I've studied in all those fields, and it makes me have a, an understanding which I don't think I would have had uh, had I only studied history or sure, literature sure, sure. or art history or, or whatever. My old orchestra teacher used to say, Everything is related to everything. And <laughs> and the funny thing about that is that, especially doing interviews for Past Perfect here, I'll be talking to someone and think, oh, that reminds me of when I interviewed someone in week six. And that's one of the reasons why I, I really love doing these interviews. And I really love having guests like you. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to be here. And it's been lovely to talk to you. And I'm uh, looking forward to hearing more of your research on Queens. Good, <laughs> good, good. I mean, Dr. Rathe, it has been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And for the listeners at home, be sure to tune in. Our website address is www.medievalstudies.ceu.hu radio. If you have a question or feel like uh, sending us a comment, uh, please be sure to give us an email at medievalradio at ceu.hu. And uh, be sure to visit our Facebook page. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Have you ever considered studying the Middle Ages at postgraduate level? Apply to CEU now. The Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University in Budapest, Hungary provides intellectually challenging comparative and multidisciplinary postgraduate education on all aspects of the history and culture of the period from 300 to 1600, from late antiquity to the early modern period, Byzantium and the Ottoman Empire. The department currently offers four internationally recognized degree programs, 
one-year and two-year MA programs in PhD in Medieval Studies, and MA in Cultural Heritage Studies. The language of instruction is English. Generous and merit-based scholarships are available to students from any country. Study with us in a highly stimulating environment in international student body, and apply until February 1st, 2017. For further details, please visit our website at medievalstudies.ceu.edu.